Welcome to the Inter-Christianity Podcast. I am Isaac, and I am joined by Zephaniah and Angela once again. And as always, we like to try to engage ideas, movements, and worldviews from a biblically Christian standpoint. Now, recently, famed comedian Dave Chappelle was under fire once again for his new Netflix comedy special for making jokes about transgenderism and trying to explain his rationale for doing so. Although he did say he would stop making such jokes in the future. Chappelle has been accused of being a transphobe for over a decade at this point, but he explains that he not only makes jokes about transgenderism because he thinks it's funny, it's also because the whole concept is confusing to him. Now, without defending or wading into the subject of jokes, we can say that Chappelle is not alone in his confusion. It seems like gender, once seemingly a simple term with a clear meaning, has adopted a bewildering variety of meanings that not even all trans people agree upon. And there are not only traditional terms like transgender, but new ones like gender fluid, non-binary, pansexual or transgender, gender queer, demigender, and so forth. It is difficult to keep up with, and yet it is not a subject that the church can avoid because it is the new hot-button topic of the culture. Youth, adults, and even ministers are coming out as transgender or gender fluid. Some Christians are now making arguments that scripture is affirming or at least neutral about gender fluidity, or even says that there are more than two biological sexes. So we want to address these questions. What does the Bible say about gender and sex? How can we effectively minister to transgender people? Like, should we use people's preferred pronouns? What do we do about people who have transitioned or want to transition? So we'll try to cover these topics and more. And once again, even though we covered politics somewhat in the last episode, we're not concerned about laws per se. We're concerned strictly about what the church can do and should do. So first, we want to get a handle about the terms. I just mentioned there's a bunch of terms. We can't cover all of them, but at the very least, we can try to have some sort of grasp of what it means to be transgender. So what is being transgender? How would you guys try to define this term? The term transgender has been expanded over the years. And so currently what the world says or is teaching is the idea that transgender refers to a person whose sex assigned at birth, so their biological sex, does not match with their gender identity. So how they might think or perceive their gender to be, and it doesn't match. And then further, gender dysphoria is a term that's been coined by the DSM, the fifth edition, or the psychology book, their manual. But basically, like gender dysphoria is the distress that one person feels, like the psychological distress that is produced as a result of the difference between their biological sex and then their gender identity. So it's mismatch. And so there's this disturbance or distress that causes like mental health problems and all of that. I think those two are like the bigger categories. And then under those two is the difference between sex and gender, which was historically the same thing or defined as in the same way until re more recently, where there is now a splitting where 
sex is more biological and then gender is more of a social and cultural definition. And so that's kind of how I've read or seen those words being used as. Yeah. And as Angela said, there's a lot of variety and um, we can only cover probably the most common forms of transgenderism. So for example, not all transgender people say they experience gender dysphoria. Probably most do, but many don't. But we have a limited amount of time, but I think Angela had a pretty good definition that transgenderism is like the feeling that your gender identity is different than your biological sex that you were born as. Let's move on to what the Bible says then. So how would you say the Bible treats the topics of sex and gender? I think they're one of the same. And so I think for me, the illustration that is used throughout scripture, where there's a union or a marriage happening, it's always between the groom and the bride. And the assumption here is that the groom is the man, the bride is the woman. And I think when you look at the biblical illustrations, they're, they're trying to point to the celebration. And so I think for us, when we think about man and woman, right, that unit, and then also the church and Christ as another unit, and then the joining of that also when heaven descends onto earth, like there's, there's just so many types of unions here. And when we see that, it's supposed to make us have this type of joy and celebration. So I think when people don't perceive it that way, they also want to have the same types of feelings, like they want to be happy. They want to be in a, in a place that they feel like they can have this joy. But I think the important thing is in terms of scripture, like we have to make sure that we define it first from what the Bible sees it as instead of interpreting it from our subjective mindsets. Yeah. So kind of going off of Z, it's very clear from actually the first chapter of Genesis, the first chapter of the Bible, that God created male and female. And there seems to be no third category or other category beyond those two. And so the Bible seems to then teach just male and female, according to Genesis 1 and all throughout scripture, like Z was saying. Okay, so I agree. I will say that I actually accept that there is some distinction between sex and gender. And so some people might say in response, okay, there's male and female in Genesis, that's biology, but gender since it's completely divorced from sex, then someone's gender expression can be whatever they choose, right? So do you think the Bible has any kind of cultural instructions about how one's sex is expressed in their gender roles, so to speak? Because the idea is that since gender is like the societal construct, kind of anything goes. So do you think the Bible says anything on that topic? So the Bible is really big on just not perverting what's like set. So the way that they dress or, you know, like the type of certain coverings that females would have and, and males also had coverings, but it was for different purposes. And so I think the Bible does have lists and rules and regulations, at least in the Old Testament and, and somewhat in the New Testament about how clothing can impact and identify who a person is. So you brought up 1 Corinthians 11, right? The head covering thing. Um, there's also no cross-dressing that's taught in Deuteronomy, but we do dress differently now. Like nobody really wears head coverings. Like we wear hats, but we don't wear head coverings, whatever those are. Even in our culture in America, 
there's a lot of overlap, it seems, between how men and women dress. Like, I know y'all can't see Angela, but she's in a baseball cap and a t-shirt, exactly like I am, okay? So, since, uh, you know, clothing is also just a cultural thing, like, should it matter? Should transgender people decide to wear a dress or high heels? Because gender is a social construct and clothing is also just culturally conditioned. So, it, like, for instance, it, it is true that the Bible talks about certain types of clothing and whatnot. And sure, like, girls can wear pants, doesn't mean they're a man, you know, and if I'm wearing short shorts when I'm running, doesn't mean that I'm a female. But I think when we have identifying markers, it's not to restrict a person and say, okay, only women can wear dresses and only men can wear whatever, right? But I think there's a freedom in knowing who you are as a person. And so when you try to appease what your mind thinks is right, you're never going to be satisfied. Whereas if you have your identity in Christ, I think like those limitations you see, like, okay, I'm a man and this is a woman, you understand who you are and you have the freedom to now explore that within Christ. Yeah, I think when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, that's the head covering passage. It is a difficult passage. There is a decent amount of consensus, though, that Paul was concerned about how people portrayed themselves, meaning that they should not portray themselves as wholly different than their sex. Now that is culturally conditioned to a point, like guys and girls in our culture can wear blue jeans and baseball caps and like football or whatever. But there are some things that seem to be pretty exclusively one sex and not the other, like again, wearing a dress, wearing, a high, wearing high heels. And even if that changes, that doesn't change the underlying principle. So as an analogy, we talked about modesty a couple episodes ago, we talked about purity culture. Now the principle is that Christians should be modest, should dress modestly. Now it's true that modesty standards might vary from culture to culture. And so Christians need to be sensitive to that, but that doesn't mean that modesty doesn't matter anymore, right? So gender expression that's consistent with your sex, I think is a biblical principle, even if what is considered men or women or male or female changes with the culture. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking with me? Yeah. So that's kind of how I view it. And so I think that speaks not only to biology, like what God created us as, but also puts responsibility on us to really expressed that what God created us as was good. Like, Angela was created as a woman. That's good. I was created as a man. That's good. And we shouldn't be trying to communicate something differently to the world based upon um, adopting behavior and dress that is perceived as wholly inconsistent with that particular sex. Yeah, I agree. But I think the question of, like, I'm wearing a hat and like a baggy t-shirt and some could argue that that's not like feminine enough and therefore you're not representing that rightly and so I think it'd be nice to define then to what extent is it misrepresentation of like the goodness that God has created in terms of dress yeah that's a that's a good question and it would have to do with you know our culture sometimes again cultural standards change to a degree but again like a clear example to me would be guys in dresses. And I think for actually women, there's a little bit more flexibility there because there's not a whole lot of 
clothing that's viewed as exclusively male. And again, we can kind of quibble with details here. I'm just trying to more point to the, the underlying principle that the Bible does not seem to make this hard divorce between sex and gender. Because not only does it teach about sex, it does seem to care about gender expression as well. Even if we quibble with details there, that doesn't change the underlying point. And so we kind of covered some of the Bible. You know, I know we kind of had to go through that quickly, but it does seem to say that the Bible teaches that there's male and female and that gender is not completely divorced from sex. But there are some counter arguments. So here's one of them. So some people argue it's like, yeah, the Bible says in Genesis that God created male and female. But it also says there's morning and evening. But we understand that there's progression, right, between morning and evening. There's things like dusk and dawn that are in between. So that should also apply to male and female. So what would be your response to that argument? It's a very, very popular argument now. I hear all the time. So I think for me, it's more of them trying to make a semantics argument, but not really understanding like the doctrinal issues there. So for me, it'd be like a category mistake where it's not really addressing what I think are the real issues. So they need to understand the context behind those words instead of just throwing words out there. I'm sorry, this is just not a very good argument. Sorry to offend anyone. There's a lot of things wrong with it. First and foremost, you see transitions between morning and evening in Genesis in the first place, because it's like it's morning and then it was evening and then the next day. So it's like implied there's there's transition. Um, you see concepts like dusk and dawn throughout the Bible. You don't see these kind of transitions between male and female. It's not like, and he was male and then he was female. There's no third gender or sex throughout scripture. And this is a key point too, and this, and I can bring this up later, and this is part of my problem with a lot of the transgender rhetoric. That's, it's a, they're constantly moving goalposts. Because like I said, the traditional argument is that gender is wholly separate from sex. Sex is, yes, just male and female. Gender can be a bunch of other things. But now, there's a lot of talk, like if you deny that there's a third sex or a fourth sex, you're a bigot. You can't say that. You can't say that sex is even just male and female, which is even now getting some secular biologists in trouble when they're trying to say like, hey, what are we talking about here? Sex is male and female. So a lot of these people who are using this argument, they're trying to say, on the one hand, sex and gender are wholly separate. But now they're going back and trying to say, no, God created like a third sex. Doesn't make any sense. So clearly what's happening in Genesis is that God is creating sexed human beings, male and female, and there's no third one. This is maybe a good time to bring up intersex because a lot of people like to bring up intersex as like, okay, what about people who are intersex? Intersex people are those who are born with male and female genetic components. That's maybe the best way I can put it. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I think it's a valid to bring up intersex because it is a different category. It's statistically not significant enough to impact the greater discussion of gender. Even those people who are intersex, there is a clear indication of which sex they are. Even though they have both parts, 
one is still more than the other. So most of the times there are that clarity there, even within intersex. But I do also want to acknowledge that there are very rare moments where you can't tell is what I've heard. But even then, it shouldn't impact the overall discussion of sex and gender and what the Bible says because it is so such a rare thing. And I would say too that obviously the fall when sin occurred impacted things on earth. And so, sure, you know, we're going to have intersex, we're going to have stuff like that. But I also think most of the transgender people are not intersex. Like they're trying to point to an argument here, but they don't necessarily identify with that either because that's a physical thing, right? And they're not trying to identify with that. They're trying to identify more with this like a, like a abstract thought or process where they're trying to solidify that. So I think that's that's also kind of interesting how they're trying to do that. Yeah, I agree, Z. Uh, this is, again, like not a very good argument. And I get it from what I hear for a lot of transgender people who have severe like gender dysphoria. Learning about intersex people makes them feel better. Like, oh, I'm not crazy. And so it's tough for them to hear like this is a bad argument. But like you said, Z, it's actually beside the point because that's like a genetic disorder about biology and has nothing to do with someone who was born clearly as a certain sex and then identifies as something different. I think it's just a red herring, frankly. But if we were to even dig further into this argument, because sometimes this argument goes something like this too. It's like, oh, about 1.7% of the population is intersex. That's the same amount of people who are redheads. Are you saying that redheads are disordered? Are you saying that redheads shouldn't be redheads? And there's just a lot of misinformation. There's, you know, anyone who knows anything about statistics, you know they can be massaged to say whatever you want. And it's a very misleading thing to say. First of all, as Angela said, the vast majority of people who are intersex, they're very clearly male or female. The person who originally made this argument, 1.7%, they included people, for example, who are guys, but they have XXY chromosomes rather than just XY. But then that's quote unquote intersex. Some of these people have no idea that they have this condition because they're just living as a dude their whole life and they're perfectly fine with who they are, right? So it's a actually an extremely tiny percentage of people where they have a, I guess a stronger intersex condition where they have male and female genitalia, for example. But even then, A, there's never been a person in the history of the world recorded where they have a working set of genitalia from both sexes. And two, intersex is more of a genetic disorder because it's it's not the same thing as a redhead mutation, which doesn't have anything to do with function. Intersex clearly is a disorder, a genetic disorder, because it leads to things like higher rates of infertility. And you can't use something that's clearly a disorder from what, what the body's supposed to look like, and you can't make that the norm. That'd be like if someone was born without legs and you like, see, this proves that human beings are not two-legged creatures. That would be a terrible argument a terrible inference. So a lot of things wrong with this argument, misleading statistics, not understanding the issues, it's a red herring. So if you really look at the biology of human beings, very, very sexually dimorphic. That's kind of the way it is. The Bible doesn't speak anything differently than that. 
science confirms it. And so really the only way to go, I think, for a transgender person is try to make that divorce between gender and sex. Because when they start trying to mess with sex, they're just messing with biological fact. And so I think that's really the only way they can go in trying to make that divorce. But as we just talked about, I don't think the Bible makes that divorce. So we're at a point where I think we can comfortably say the Bible affirms that there's male and female sexes and that in gender expression, you should not hide from that. Those are good things that God created you as. All that said, I understand that's not going to make a lot of people feel better. In fact, just saying this thing has probably made a lot of people mad at us. And we do want to be sensitive. We want to speak truth and we're not going to be afraid to speak truth, but we do want to be sensitive to that. So a lot of people are still going to say like, hey, I was born in the wrong body. I like legitimately do not feel like I belong in this body. Some people with severe gender dysphoria, they can't even look themselves in the mirror because it's just too traumatizing. They can't look at a picture of themselves, you know, this, that kind of thing. So some Christians even might give a concession. They might say something like, okay, due to the fall, as you said, Z, it is the case that for some people, their gendered mind or their sexed mind is different than their body. So they have like a, a male brain or a male mind or male soul that was incorrectly dumped into a female body for lack of a better word. So their experience is real. Their experience is that, yeah, they're in the wrong body. But yes, it, maybe it's the result of the fall, but that doesn't discount that what they're going through is in fact true. So what would you say to that kind of argument? A little bit more nuanced. So yes, the fall affects things, but I don't think I'm in a place to say that God makes mistakes. And so Isaiah 45 verse nine kind of says, you know, the clay is not gonna say to the potter, why'd you, why'd you make me like this, right? And so I think a lot of times we have to see that God does have a purpose or reason in creating us in the way that he did. And I also think that when, like you're saying, when a person's going through this, you do wanna to listen to them. I think too many times churches want to heal them, fix them, and, and it's the right intent, but they probably rush the process or they don't know what to do or they wanna pass it on real quick. So I think if we try to, listen to them and hear them out and, and walk them through it and then help them see like, okay, this is a biblical perspective and you're experiencing this, but how do we then combine what the scriptural truths are to help you through it versus like rushing the process or trying to get them physical, like worldly help and then confusing them more. So I think for me, in terms of that type of counseling process, it's, I would say like helping them construct a biblical worldview is really important. Otherwise, it'd be really difficult trying to talk to them because then it'd just be like missing each other the whole time. Yeah. And something I would say to that is, or to say that the fall has messed up and you're in the wrong body. Like I would question that and say, then why is it that you think that God messed up and put you in the wrong body or that the result of the fall has put you in the wrong body? Why not the fall impact your understanding of gender um, more than anything because I think if the fall can do that then the fall can also okay wait let me rephrase that <laughs> no, I, no I can follow you I, did, okay is that does that make sense yeah like point. yeah it's a very good point yeah and and it's 
there's underlying assumptions there. It starts off on this idea that God messes up, like Z said, but also that the answer is then to change bodies versus change the understanding of what gender and like the purpose and how we are image bearers within male and female. And so my question then is like, who told you that you're in the wrong body? Who told you that the answer was to change your physical body? And it's like, again, yeah, this is such a sensitive issue where like there's a lot of mental health struggles that are even attached to this uh, problem of like sex and gender and all that. And so I would, yeah, question that too. And I think those are good points, Angela and Z. Uh, Let me briefly talk about popular brain scan arguments. So the argument goes is that, oh, we can look at brain scans. Some people do have female brains and like in a male body. And some neuroscientists back in like the 90s, I think, made that argument. And honestly, I think any careful, honest neuroscientist now would say that that is gross oversimplification. First of all, there's something called neuroplasticity. Your brain changes based upon its experiences and its environment. So you can't even make that argument that, oh, this person was born as having a male brain in a female body, because it very much could be the case that if this person wants to live their life more as a female, due to this person's experiences, their brain changes alongside of that. So that's a huge one. You're not taking into account neuroplasticity. Secondly, it's very unclear what it means for there to be male and female brains. And people have looked at the original paper and pointed out a lot of problems. There have been other studies where it doesn't show there's this drastic difference between male and female brains. Um, Sometimes it shows exactly the opposite. Even transgender people, their brains, their hormone levels and all that kind of stuff, all consistent with the sex they were born as. So the neuroscience argument is very oversimplified. It's just not a good argument. And then when we start going into mind and soul, there's a lot of philosophical assumptions there about what the soul is in relation to the body that, you know, I'm not going to get into, you know, whether you're Cartesian dualist or you're, you know, a Thomistic hylomorphist. I'm just going to say you have to do a lot of groundwork to even get to this point where you can say it is even possible for there to have a sexed soul that's put into a differently sexed body. You got a lot of philosophical work to do, and I don't see most people doing that work. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So not a lot of good arguments there, even though we understand why people make them. Um, But again, we don't want to be afraid to boldly speak truth. And that means addressing arguments and what their problems might be. So I think the Bible is relatively clear on this topic. But just as we talked about in homosexuality, which is a distinct issue, that doesn't mean that practical considerations are easy. Just because like, here, here's what the Bible says. Here's what science and philosophy say. Um, There's still people who need to be loved and people who are going through difficult things. And we understand that. So let's talk about some of these practical issues that a lot of people want to bring up. So let's start... It sounds kind of small to most people, but this topic can be a big deal to transgender people, and that's pronouns. So let's say someone comes to your church who identifies as something other than their biological sex. Let's say that they change their name from Jack to Jill. Born as Jack, now they want to go by Jill. 
And then secondly, they prefer they, them pronouns. How do you propose Christians interact with this person? Should they use a person's preferred name and pronouns? Both of them, neither? What would you say? Yeah, so we, we talk about this quite a bit in seminary and everyone has a different opinion. I think for me, if I'm actively offending them by calling them by their whatever, well, I guess you wouldn't even know their perceived name. So let's say they introduce themselves as Jill. I guess you would call them Jill, but I don't see why I would use pronouns with them. I just, I probably would just keep sticking with the name. And then, you know, in some way, if they want to learn about the truth, we can help them with that and then try to see it along the way. But I don't, I don't think it's wise to try to fix it in the moment. Like, mm. oh, you Jill, but what was you like, you know, before this, you know what I mean? Like, let me maybe try to give both sides very briefly. And we're talking about conservative Christians who agree with what we just said about the Bible, but we're talking about now practical application. So there's a side of don't use their preferred pronouns because that is laced with ideology that is contrary to scripture. And we are essentially lying to them. If we call like a person who's born a man and wants to be a female, we call this person a she, we're just feeding into a deception that we as Christians should not be doing. And there's the other side that call themselves like in favor of what's called pronoun hospitality. And they'll say, well, for many transgender people, it's actually very triggering to hear the pronoun associated with their biological sex. Like it brings up all sorts of things, hurts them a lot. And so as Christians, we shouldn't do that. It's not gonna build trust. It's not gonna build relationships. So let's meet them where they are, so to speak, and use their preferred pronouns and their preferred name. Just love them that way. And then we'll worry about other things down the road as we try to lead them to Christ and into discipleship. So those are the kind of two sides. Pronoun hospitality side, there'll be people like Preston Sprinkle. And on the no pronoun side will be people like John Piper. Yeah, I think for me, I definitely lean towards pronoun hospitality. Just because for any kind of relationship or friendship to form, I've realized if you don't call them by what they prefer, like you're kind of done. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't have a grounds of respect established for a friendship with someone who's in that process of struggling through like their gender identity. And so I think I can lean more towards where Preston is at and can understand where Preston's at with that pronoun hospitality mentality. Though, like I do think eventually at some point, there does need to be a conversation of what you really think. Like, I'm not going to lie to this person who says, so like you call me by my preferred pronoun, but do you believe it or whatever? Like at that point, like obviously I will say what's true because on the other hand, where John Piper's at, I it's valid. Like truth and love are connected. Like you can't love someone with without like the truth. You love them and you say what's true because those things can't be separated in Christianity. And so I think the relational aspect is I would use the personal pronouns, but also I don't think you have to completely throw out what you believe is true if you're on that side. Yeah, I need to spend more time thinking about this. Currently, I kind of take a middle of the road approach. So first of all, regarding their preferred name, I have no problem with that. I've actually have talked to transgender people before. I just use whatever name they introduce themselves as, right? 
I'm not like, oh, you're calling yourself Joshua, but you're really, you know, Jenny, right? So I, I'm fine with that. Pronouns, there's some things I'm okay with, I think, and other things I'm not. So I'm actually, I think, more okay with calling like a transgender man, meaning a, a person who was born female and transitioned to a man as he. I'm more okay with that. Um, maybe this is more of a, a nerdy thing for me. I have bigger problems with A, the, the non-English word pronouns, like Z and Zer and whatever, they've made up completely different pronouns. And I also actually have a problem with they, them pronouns. And my primary concern is actually that it's grammatically and linguistically clunky. Like it's very confusing. It's hard to understand what's going on. See, some people, they'll make the point like, oh, but language changes. Like, yes, I know language changes, but language changes naturally based upon usage and basically societal consensus. It's not because a group of people are like demanding that you say this thing, especially under threat of force. But, you know, we're not going to go into government right now. So when it comes to like, for example, they, them pronouns, I remember even reading some books where someone's like, oh, this transgender person's a good friend of mine. And they start, then they transition into they, them pronouns. And it's imminently confusing. It's like, wait a second. I thought we we're talking about a singular person. So grammatically it's just incorrect. And again, the Zer and other made up pronouns, they're never going to catch on because that's not how language works. So I got a problem with those. And I'm sorry if I offend anyone. That's just, I'm just being honest. Like, I just think linguistically it's clunky and, and just impractical. So, and that's kind of how I stand right now. Yeah. And I think it's fair conclusion or a fair stance because as much as people demand or prefer or say what their preferred pronoun is, and if you don't use it, they're upset and they kind of don't allow for any relationship to form. I do think the other is true then. Like if someone isn't comfortable using those pronouns, I think it's one thing to not use it just in defiance and disrespect. Like, oh, you're definitely a man, so I'm not going to use her. Like, I think that's just kind of rude, but I think it's another to demand someone's convictions or someone's beliefs to be disrupted just because it makes you more comfortable. Like, or I think people, yeah. or people just make mistakes. Like, right, yeah, to not let's be real here. Like, <laughs> right. if based upon visual cues, if someone sees someone and identifies like masculine biological characteristics and calls this person he or refers to him as sir, and I just even use the word him right there, and then that person gets upset, it's like, I don't think that person did it on purpose, it's just like natural. It's like, I see what strikes me as a man. I use this particular pronoun, period. And yeah, I do agree there needs to be a, a little bit more grace, especially for transgender people who identify as Christian, like to understand that. Now I get it. They feel like they're the marginalized class and they feel like, you know, we've been beaten down all this time. Why are we making concessions? But, you know, that's how conversations kind of work and relationships work. Right. Grace and compromise and seeking to understand, which is probably like a theme that's been brought up almost every episode is <laughs> like learning to be charitable and loving and gracious on both ends. So as much as people love the idea of pronoun hospitality, which is like good. And again, like something I like can 
go along with at the same time. Like you shouldn't villainize those who are confused or don't agree. So yeah, I just want to say that too. Well, then moving on regarding just basic trying to be hospitable and loving and ministering to transgender people who might come to church. What would you say about things like gender transitioning? There, there are a couple of things I want to bring up. One is, what do we do when people come to church and they have already transitioned from the sex they were born as to the gender they identify as? And then two, what do we do when people in our churches want to get gender transition therapy or whatever, and their reason is because they have severe depression and maybe severe suicidal thoughts. They're just in a miserable place and they feel like this is the answer for them. Is there have been even some conservative Christians who are like, okay, in very, very like limited situations, maybe we should permit gender transition because of these like severe depression and suicide risk. So what would you say to that? I think to answer the latter first, it's maybe trying to help them understand. It's kind of like a Gnostic belief that the body itself is is bad or like some type of prison. And they have to be out of it or change it. But no matter what they changed, like let's say in the end, when we receive our new bodies, right, for eternity, it's going to be back to what it's supposed to be, right? So... Because cosmetically, you can change all you want, but that's not really going to provide you that type of satisfaction you're looking for. Because let's say they do switch, and then it's not something that's helping them, then what? You know, you just can keep switching back and forth. So I think for me, like, you, you want to be loving. I just don't know how to always articulate this, but I don't think I would be someone encouraging a person to do this, even if they were, like close to suicide or having deep depression and i would just keep praying and asking god to work through them with that and and like be there for them obviously to answer the the first part you were saying if someone has already transitioned like i said i don't think i would ask them like oh you gotta switch back but i think it depends like if a man gets breast implants i think you can remove that because it's not like life-threatening kind of thing but you know if uh something's cut i don't know how to bring that back. So I don't know. So I don't know. I guess there are surgeries where if it's gone, you can put your finger there and it'll function. But well, in fairness, I think still, I, I could be wrong, but I think I, if not most, at least many transgender people have not done anything to their body, like surgery, right. hormonal, they've done something yeah. and then yeah. they dress and try to act a, a different kind of way, but at least yeah. they haven't done anything like drastic as surgery. Right. So yeah, I think for the most part, it just depends on what type of surgeries they've done. And I think also sometimes like it's learning about responsibility. Like I did this and these are the consequences to what I did. And we sometimes have to live through that. But that doesn't mean that somehow your relationship with God or your community is going to be damaged because if you repent, you know, God will relent and, and you reconcile with him and whatnot. So I think the least of our worries is once you're worshiping with God, whether or not like, you know, you're going to switch back. Like, that's not going to stop the church community from fellowshipping and doing God's work. But I do think that people have many different thoughts on this. So, but that's just kind of where I stand on it. I agree. But some people will still bring up practical things like, yes, we want to fellowship with this person. But so much of church, 
is sometimes separated by gender. So not only bathrooms inside of church, like guy and girl bathrooms, and a lot of transgender people are very like apprehensive about going to the bathroom of their biological sex, but also things like small groups or men's retreats, women's retreats. You know, if you or if you go to a co-ed retreat, you still have men and women cabins for or boy and girl cabins, especially for youth. So how would you deal with those things with like the reality of someone who had gender dysphoria or has gone through a gender transition? Yeah, and I would say we you'd have to be accommodating. Like some of the retreat sites we have, they have their own places. And I don't want them to be like, oh, like just because you're this, you get a special place and other people feel like that's not fair. But it's like, there has to be grace on both sides. Like if they've gone through this, then they have to know like, that's what's going to happen when they go on these things. But at the same time, it's like, like, yeah, like maybe the church needs to sign a bathroom. That's just for them. Not like, Oh, you can't go here and you can't go there, but just a place for them. Like, I think the church could be understanding, but not all of a sudden all of our bathrooms are all gendered. Cause then I think that'd be like really chaotic. But I think if you, if you try if the church really is trying to accommodate for that person, I think they'll see it, but not like I said, compromise their doctrines and values. So let's say with that small group issue, I would probably put them in a co-ed group instead of a gender specific one, because it would just be way too difficult. So, okay. or like a seekers group or something like that. Yeah. I think to answer the first part, whether or not we should permit someone who's going through severe depression or suicidal thoughts like if they should transition. I think there's so many layers to that because first of all, trans people struggle with suicide thoughts or they have suicide ideations higher than the average person. And there's so many things attached in what they struggle with. And so to say that transitioning would fix their depression or their suicidal thoughts is I think just a small part because you should address the mental health first, or at least in my thought, like it's interesting that we think a physical change could impact the mental health. And there's still studies being done to this day. There, there isn't really long-term study. So it's really hard to tell whether or not the transition itself that is surgical, like helps. Right. There are, there are studies that when they're, tracking people for more than a year it is at best unclear if gender transition helps with right. mental health issues yeah right and then sometimes other problems of mental health rise even though they've already transitioned bodily and so i think my concern is like okay let's deal with the mental health aspect too like we should put more emphasis on that because that seems to be the thing that is like higher risk for those things. And so I, I just want to say that like before we even transition, because there are complications to detransition and health concerns with that. So before we even take that big step of like changing surgically, like that should be dealt with first. And then second, like say they don't have bodily surgery yet. And it's more of a social thing that they've experienced. Those Things like I think are easier to transition back. And I would want to encourage those who have trusted in Christ to reflect and be an image of our Christ in the way that God has designed them. So if they can, like to go back to their original design, that's a little easier and more feasible for those who haven't had 
like hormones or the surgery. Because even hormones, getting off of that is a big process too. Like there's a lot that comes with being attached to those hormone blockers or whatever. What I'm realizing is a lot of like psychology and health that's like beyond the boundaries that I'm used to. But these are things that I've read and heard in like some studies. And so um, I think there's just a lot of research to be done before anything is really accomplished there. Yeah, I think that's especially true when we're talking about kids. There's kind of a push in this country to start transitioning kids. And not only is that physically dangerous because we don't know all the long-term effects, it's also very irresponsible because small children who experience some level of gender dysphoria is not always severe. The vast majority of them get over that feeling when they hit adolescence. So that's one. Secondly, we know that there are, because this is the nature of teenagers, they can be influenced by their environment. So there's something called, I think, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Sometimes that's caused by environment, like kind of what's cool, what they're seeing on social media, the internet. And there are actually a lot of stories of like teenage girls who transitioned because they felt that this was a way for them to get affirmation, get likes on social media or whatever. And then several years later, they regretted it, but they've already gone through hormone therapy, you know, and they, it's difficult for them to kind of deal with all that physically. So especially for young people, I think it's a hard no for me. We have to, at least until they're 18 and they can make their own decisions, like tell them like, this is not a good idea. Now I do think, like I, I'm not in favor of gender transitioning, but we do probably need to do a better job as a church telling people like, if this is the route you take, we may not totally agree with it. We're still going to love you. Still going to minister to you. We're not going to treat you as some monster. So that's something that we can do a better job doing, even if, you know, I largely agree with y'all. Like um, there's a lot of complications and problems with gender transitioning. Um, so I think Zeph and I touched on this a bit, but what if, so if someone has already received sex altering surgery, you guys would say no to try and going back or like just kind of live as you've, you are right now. So I think it depends on the types of surgeries. So if it's obviously something that's that they could switch back and make the transition easier, then I would definitely be all for that. But if it's something that's already like pretty life altering, then I'd be hesitant to make their body go through another type of transition like that. But then again, again, these are just personal thoughts. These aren't like, oh, this must be it across the board for all churches. Yeah, like I said, if it's dangerous to transition back, which oftentimes reversing a surgery is, like I want to make sure that they're cared for and they're healthy and don't want to push the limits just because we think whatever, right? And so it's up to that person and that situation, which oftentimes it is case by case. And like to take time with them to make that decision. Cause I don't think it has to be like a, okay, you got saved. You better transition right now. Like, but more so walk with them, teach them what the Bible says and give them um, that view and foundation so that they can really pray through what the Lord is speaking to them, but also the community around them. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point about patience. I think we as a church can do maybe a better job of walking with them and trying to understand in some small ways what they're going through and accommodating 
as best we can without compromising on truth. Um, do I have any final words on this topic? Yeah, I just want to say a few things. I think one, I've seen Christians be very rude and jerks about this. It's like, yes, we speak truth, but we speak it in love as well. And so I just want to encourage people to approach this topic in that way, because it's a very complicated topic. There's a lot of mental health struggles connected to this and still things being studied and yeah, try to be there for those who are really struggling and create a safe space for those to process and pray and seek what is true with them instead of kind of beating their head with the Bible. And another thing is to be reflective of the gospel, that the problem and the solution, it's not necessarily to change your physical body to make what's inside better. In fact, it points to a dissatisfaction of the design that God has made. And when we understand that God is good and he is a good creator and that there's a perfect design and purpose for our design, even in gender, that is a journey to discover, but that is an encouragement empowerment to discover that through the gospel, through who God is as a creator and that it's good and the world and sin distorted the good design that God has. And so I just want to point back to the heart of why this matters, why gender matters, that even in it, we can trust that God has something so beautiful in mind when he created male and female. And I think that will take some time to find and discover, but just to encourage you guys to do that if you are struggling. And for those who know that they're struggling to walk with people in that. And finally, this is a big topic. Even me before coming in, I was nervous because I didn't know much about it. And so Preston Sprinkle's book Embodied was a very good book to kind of get the big picture of this discussion. It's not perfect, but it's so good in helping me understand. So I just want to encourage that resource. Uh, but other than that, yeah. Yeah, and to add to that, I'd say... We aren't pretending to be mental health professionals. We're not. We are ministers who study scripture and theology, and that's why we can address some of the biblical arguments and the philosophy, that kind of thing. We're not discounting the need for counseling and for real psychological therapy, and in fact, we encourage it. So pastors out there, churches out there, we can take a stance on what we think is biblically true, and we can, of course, love people, and we should love people. But I would also encourage you to look for mental health resources to point people to, because in terms of straight up counseling, like let's say young people with gender dysphoria, probably most pastors are not equipped for that. You know, so don't pretend that you are. So love that person, find that person some help, and provide that person with community. So kind of also knowing our limitations is, is a good thing for us to be honest with ourselves about. So hopefully that was a helpful episode for everyone. I know somewhat controversial issue. We'd love to get feedback and maybe if we do, we'll do what we did with the homosexuality episode and do a part two. But this has been the Interchristianity Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.